Hello, everybody, and welcome back to 100 Years 100 Movies. Today's day six of the season of The Witch, and today we're going to be going back uh, in, back in time, uh, talking more historically about horror in the 1930s. Now, for me, uh, the 30s are synonymous, uh, when it comes to horror at least, uh, with the Universal Monsters. Now, I've talked plenty about the Universal Monsters, so I don't want to just focus on them. I can't help myself, I will be talking about the Universal Monsters in more detail in another episode, but that's not to say that that was the only thing that was happening in horror. You know, um, yes, the Universal Monsters were very popular in the 1930s. Um, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, um, all these movies, um, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, they all came out in the, in the 30s. Um, and actually, the first part of the 30s, like the, the really interesting thing about the 1930s is that in general, it was a transitional period for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, we have in the late 20s, early 30s, the uh, change from silent movies to talkies, to talking movies. So especially like in 29, 1930, there's very few horror movies just because there was, um, and the ones that, that are available, that um, came out, like I said, some of them were lost, but a lot of, because of that transition to sound, um, there just wasn't a lot in production at that time period. Um, and then when 1931, you know, we started having like this ratcheting up, especially with, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein, specifically along with some other movies that really kind of kick horror into um kind of like a golden age um we also have king kong during this period and you know king kong which um colloquially is known as one of the most censored movies of all time once again i don't know if it's true or not but definitely makes for a good story um around in the 30s we also had the beginning of the Hayes code which led to um Hollywood's own self-censorship and I think even in some of the stuff that you see in movies from the early 30s compared to stuff in some of the later 30s and in the 40s um you can see where that impact comes in not so much in subject matter or how things are presented but maybe in the in the way that things are edited in the way that um certain ideas just kind of come about or in the way that things are presented specifically, because um, you know they had to follow these uh, these regulations in order for a movie to be released. So, uh, like I'm thinking, for example, one of the, in Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, which came out in 1931, is not a Universal monster movie. Um, but there's a sequence when Doctor Jekyll, who's played by Frederick March, who you know he went on to do lots of other other uh, much more serious movies than than Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, there's this sequence where he, when he first takes the potion and you, you get this, um, first of all, you get this wonderful, um, transformation scene, which is all done practically with makeup and shadows, similar to what, uh, would be done later on with, um, a transformation for the Wolfman. Um, but it's just, it's, it's really, really, really cool to see, um, as you see him slowly, changing into Mr. Hyde, um, during this transformation sequence, we get this, um, first person view, the camera shifts to, um, different focus and, and we start seeing glimpses of things. And one of the things that we see is this woman saying, come back to me. And, and she starts shaking her leg as she's showing, um, 
her stockings. And I'm thinking, yeah, 1931, you could show that. A few years later, there's no way they would have let that shot in. Um, but Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, I think, is a movie that really holds up. And Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde itself, the story is a seminal horror story, much like The Phantom of the Opera, um, much like Dracula and much like, you know, Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. Um, others too, but I think Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is a movie that gets consistently remade and he's a character that is interesting because of that duality of um, an unrestrained um, id, an unrestrained person that gives into their basis nature and someone who is living in the constrained um, the constraints of society, you know, and kind of seeing that how well, in the case of of Dr. Jekyll, how he has both of those and how it's personified of Mr. Hyde. The other really interesting thing I think that they did, um, so in the, the transformation scene, it really is just the beginning as you see his face change, you know, you don't get the full transformation. Um, because one of the things they did in this, in, in, um, this movie is they really focused on Mr. Hyde, making him almost like ape-like, making him look less, um, not, not, not human, but more like maybe um, a devolved version of a human, so like Cro-Magnum man or something like that. And so we have um, like these large teeth, um, his head sloped back. It's more kind of like a gorilla, you know, and it's it's different. Um, now that I think about it, there's probably some racial connotations there that... <laughs> Being this was 1931, that were probably intended. But regardless, um, the story itself of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is, is really interesting just because of that that duality that it talks about. And um, this is, like, basically, I think the only um, Robert Louis Stevenson story that I'm really familiar with just because, um, you know, most of, his, most of the stuff that, he, that Stevenson is known for is um, not so much horror, but, like... Um, pirate stories and like while i'm familiar with like treasure island i've never actually read it um but i have read dr jekyll and mr hyde it's it's a quick read it's it's um interesting and very very influential and, it, and i think um the great thing about something like this going back to the 30s is seeing excuse me seeing how um you know some of these makeups were done it wasn't just lon Chaney that was doing these things there was other people that that were masters of their craft and i mean you would see that with like I mentioned before, with like Dracula or the Mummy or um, or Frankenstein himself, um, but like I said, it's not to say that all horror revolved around um, those beloved Universal monsters, and they also didn't have a monopoly on those particular types of characters. You know, it's not like Dracula is the only vampire movie that came out in in the nineteen thirties. Um, I think one of the really great examples of another vampire uh, movie from the thirties is Vampire, which came out in 1932, uh, directed by Carl Dreyer. This is a German movie. Um, it's not part of German Expressionism. There's some of those hints, but it is a bit more straightforward. And this is actually based on the novel Carmilla, very, very loosely based on Carmilla. Um, for those that are that haven't read as many vampire books as I have, because I've read way too many, uh, Carmilla is actually, it predates Dracula and they're very similar. I mean, I guess you can, you can make an argument that Bram Stoker kind of, I guess if you want to be 
um, nice about it. He was inspired by Carmilla. If uh, you don't, then he basically ripped it off. Um, Carmilla was, was written by um, Sheridan Le Fanu, uh, who is an Irish um, Irish writer. And the story itself, much like Dracula, revolves around um, this first-person perspective of this woman who is being um, tormented by this vampire Carmilla. Um, now the movie Vampire takes that basic premise of a female vampire um, preying on a town and preying particularly on on women and it, it, it does something different with it. I mean it's 1932 so we're not... Um, Carmilla itself is a very queer story and a lot of that is kind of taken out in Vampire. We end up following um, the character of Alan Gray uh, so we're even though Carmilla is from the perspective of a woman, um, we now have a perspective of a man. Mister um, Gray, who's played by Julian West, comes to this town, and slowly but surely, um, things start to go awry. And there's just some great sequences in this, um, just some interesting stuff. And um, if you want to see a different take on vampires. Um, this is a, a interesting movie to watch, much like some other um, other movies where you know it where Dracula isn't the main character or the vampire isn't the main character. Um, there's not a lot of vampirism. There's not a lot of um, vampires in general in this movie. A lot of it is implied, and I think um, that subtlety is something that um, you can see in great effect. And I think in other other vampire movies later on. So in a way, this is one of the, not the first or anything like that, but um, one of the early movies that really took that idea of um, not focusing on the vampire. And um, I really feel like a lot of times when we focus on, on the vampire itself, it, it's a variation of Dracula focusing on the impact of the vampire and um, what it, it is doing and how it is affecting other people. I think it kind of goes back to Carmilla and to um, other stories as well about vampires. But Vampire is just a, a great, different, subtle take on um on vampires and something which is interesting to see just because it came out like the year after dracula you know <laughs> um definitely worth worth checking out um now one of the great things about universal i mean they weren't just making these monster movies they were making other types of movies they were maybe making other sorts of horror movies and one of the other things one of the best that they came up with was the old dark house which isn't a universal monster movie but it has a lot of the same trappings in the sense that it is directed by james whale who did bride of frankenstein and, and frankenstein it stars um boris karloff in in the movie as um a, a manservant named morgan and of course this is the time when he was just billed as karloff you know never gave his first name but we have a lot of other um great character actors as well that pops pop up in this for example um ernest Thesiger, ernest Thesiger, who played dr pretorius in in brighter frankenstein is in this as horace femme um we have a lot of other character actors that would pop up left and right in universal monster movies so it's really for me it's a blast to see them in a non-universal monster movie, still a universal horror movie, but in a non-monster movie, kind of just showing up in similar roles to what you would expect to see them in. And this movie, um, it's the kind of the prototypical sort of, um, like, people 
showing up at this old manor, you know, like, what's in the title, the old dark house, you know, like, they show up to the, um, it's a stormy night, they show up to this manor in, in, in Wales, and seeking shelter from the storm, and it turns out that the tenants of the home aren't necessarily all there, and, um, craziness ensues from there. Um, so this is just really great to see, uh, like I said, just these people that are, well-known within horror, or at least well-known at the time uh, because of the Universal Monsters kind of branching out doing other stuff. Um, Karloff in particular did a lot of horror movies. Um, uh, Bela Lugosi, not as much. Like he, I mean, he did plenty, but um, I think in this time period, like right after Dracula, he was um, riding high and basically full of, sh- uh, full of, his, um, full of himself and you know, he didn't always take everything, and, and just a few years later, he was just basically taking everything, and, and um, unfortunately, kind of had a tragic career, um, you know, he ended up becoming an opium addict, and uh, yeah, you know, um, Bela Lugosi's life story is not, not the greatest, Boris Karloff, I mean, he, um, you know, he had a family, he, he had a much more, um, much less cantankerous life, I guess, but um, it's just great to see to see someone like Boris Karloff in, in a different role and kind of, in a way, almost signaling what his career would be because, as I said, he did a lot of horror movies and he always kind of played these interesting characters that were either killers or um, they were victims who ended up becoming killers because of what was done to them. Um, and I think part of it has to do with just his look. You know, when um, one of the great things I think about actors this time period is that they had just these striking either features uh, the striking look, a striking vocal style, and it, it just made for, um, especially for horror, it, it made for interesting, um, you know, interesting actors in movies. Um, one of the other people in the 1930s who was at the top of his game was Peter Lorre. And Peter Lorre, I, I mean, I've talked about him in, in the context of like Casablanca or M, um, and much later his career with horror, but even in the 1930s, he was still doing, or he had already kind of started in horror and not, not necessarily diving as deep into it um, as he would later on. But in 1935, we got Mad Love, which is actually a remake of The Hands of Orlock, which is based on a book. Um, Hands of Orlock having... I want to say starring John Barrymore having come out in the 1920s um or maybe actually even in the 1930s around the same time as, as Mad Love um Mad Love is a um story about a crazy scientist basically much much like Dr. Jekyll um in, in this case um Dr. Gogol played by Peter Lorre is a um a surgeon who um, as the movie progresses, you realize is insane, and <laughs> he becomes in a trance, and he becomes um, enamored, obsessed with um, Yvonne Orlock, played by Francis Drake, and not Sir Francis Drake, Francis as this is Francis Dorman, um, uh, played by Francis Drake, and he tries to get her away from her husband Stephen Orlock, played by Colin Clive, who you know, was the doctor in, um, Dr. Frankenstein in, in Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, so the story of, uh, of Mad Love revolves around Peter Laurie's obsession with, with Yvonne. Um, Stephen Orlock is a, um, world-renowned pianist whose hands are crushed in an accident. 
and in a moment of desperation, she goes to Dr. Govel in order to um, fix his hands, and he gives them a hand transplant. But unbeknownst to them, the hands that he uses are the hands taken from a murderer played by Edward Brophy named Rollo. Um, and these killer hands end up causing problems for, for Stephen and Yvonne. And of course, um, Dr. Peter Lorre ends up um, basically psychologically torturing these people into thinking that they've um, that steven's committed murder when it's actually him and as i said he becomes unhinged as the movie progresses and um i think there's one of the more famous lines of the movie is um as dr gogol kind of falls further into insanity he says something along the lines of um you always kill what you love and for yvonne that's not the best news um but it's just great to see to see Peter Lorre in in horror movies even in in the mid 30s and um because since he would be so integral in horror later on in his career um and, and Peter Lorre in general is just always kind of great to see just because he brings this um I don't know certain energy <laughs> to his roles and uh, he's just great as there's just something about him where he always came off a little off so him playing villains and playing these despicable characters is always kind of fun to watch um now i know when i was talking in the 20s i was spot spotlighting a lot of movies especially from europe um not so much from america um the 30s had like this research had this kind of resurgence of horror in america but it's not to say that it was only in america i mean throughout the world we still were having horror movies coming out um and in 1937, we actually got the first Chinese horror movie, and that is Song at Midnight, which is very loosely based on the Phantom of the Opera. And as, if you meant, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, I'm always down for a Phantom of the Opera story. Um, Song at Midnight, I, I found out about recently, and, and on, <laughs> I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> it's for free on YouTube. Uh, just be sure to find a subtitled version, um, because it is all in Chinese. Obviously, it's a Chinese movie. Um... And when I say this movie is loosely based on on Phantom of the Opera, yes, they take the idea of this um, man who I believe this movie is called Song Da Ping, who um, is disfigured and who roams the countryside, basically um, taking on anybody who crosses him, and he follows this troupe of um, of this opera house, um, and. A lot of the movie really revolves around <clears throat> around the characters within the opera. Um, this is also partly a musical, which is interesting to see. Which also for, I mean, I mean, shit, there's a literal musical of, of um, The Phantom of the Opera, which is great if you've never seen it. And um, the movie version is all right, I guess. But um, the play itself, the I really remember plays, is, is pretty great. Um, so it's interesting to see that even in the 1930s, they were kind of running with that idea of making this a literal musical um in musical in the sense of like the, <laughs> it's not like the um the phantom busts out in a song or anything like that but um or or song busts out in a song it's more about um the the opera players are practicing and you see the play that they're doing and a lot of the horror as well comes from just these terrible people that do terrible things not so much from song to ping um the other great thing about this is they have a really interesting take on um um on the phantom on, on the character of the phantom wherein you know the other movies the 
makeup really kind of worked around the features of, for example, um, Lon Chaney. In, in this one, the makeup really looks like almost like melted wax. It, it is, it's striking. Um, but the other interesting thing about it is you don't get to see it until the very end of the movie. The whole time uh, he's covered up with, uh, in black robes, so he, and his face is covered. And even though he will tell people who he is, but, um, you know, they, they think he's a ghost or they're not sure what to think, he doesn't show them their face. And you get this great reveal of um, this, not so much gruesome, it, it's uh, it's just interesting. It's just, like I said, it looks like like melted wax or maybe if you ever read death in the family like the joker's face after he um <laughs> this is gonna sound crazy so the joker had his face cut off in the comics and then he basically stapled it back on because sure why not um and it has this really weird look to it because it's basically um rotting flesh uh so it has a very similar take on on this um in song at midnight um the 30s you know overall had a lot of great horror and i think they really were kind of just the beginning of this um kind of boom period which would continue into the 1940s um but that's for another day so that's it for today thank you for listening and we'll uh we'll see you tomorrow